The Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast is sponsored by Prairie Care. You know, going through the process of getting help with your mental health can be very overwhelming. I definitely know that from firsthand experience. Prairie Care can help guide you through it and get you in touch with the help that you need. They've been offering mental health services to all ages in the Twin Cities of Minnesota since 2005. Whether you're looking for clinical services, a specialty outpatient program, or a more intensive level of care like inpatient treatment, Prairie Care has you and your family covered. Visit prairie-care.com to learn more. That's prairie-care.com. I think it's really important to lean into them, allow them, and to love into them. I think that's part of unconditional love, that, that we really have to love that aspect of ourselves that's finally expressing those emotions. Hello there, my friends, and a big welcome into this episode of the Take What Serves, Leave the Rest podcast. My name is Brian Pyatt. I'm your host, and so glad that you're here. I've uh, been maneuvering some emotions in my own world today and really tried to intentionally take a nice deep breath in and kind of ground before I, I started recording this with all of you. So I hope that uh, you can do the same for yourself if you might be finding yourself in a similar place, just a, a nice deep breath to, uh, to officially arrive. And uh, looking forward to, to getting into this episode with all of you today. I have talked on this this podcast in the past about really how much I, I, I so resonate with um, so many mind-body approaches to mental health, a lot of holistic approaches, spiritual approaches. A lot of those have been so helpful for me and such an, an integral part of, of a lot of my healing. And um, that's really what we're going to kind of dive into a little bit more here today with Laura DeVore Matz. So Laura is a licensed independent clinical social worker. She has over 40 years of experience as a psychotherapist and educator with really a, a special interest in spiritual psychology and transpersonal development, which I think is so beautiful. She is a senior faculty member with the internationally recognized Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Her work has taken her to the Middle East, to Haiti, and throughout the United States to work with trauma survivors using innovative approaches to trauma recovery, self-care, and prevention. Uh, Laura also works at Prairie Care in the, the Twin Cities as the clinical education specialist, conducting leadership trainings, mentoring, and also supervision. Now, Laura also just released the book, Darkness Was My Candle. And in this book, Laura goes into what she's experienced in her own life, her own story, her incredible healing journey. And, and that's really where we're going to we're going to start the, the conversation with her here today. Um, we go into that, some of the things that have helped her and supported her along the way, and then going into the importance of the, the mind-body connection and some of the tools around that for healing. So um, I hope that you take something from this conversation. I hope that it serves you in some way. Um, want to just give you a heads up that there is some talk in this episode about sexual abuse 
And so if that's something that you know that you need to particularly take care of yourself around, um, want to make sure that you go ahead and do that and just make sure that you're aware as we uh, step into this conversation. So here we go. My, my conversation with Laura DeVore-Matz. Laura, I just want to thank you so much for, for being here and, and taking some time to be on the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I'm, I'm yeah. really looking forward to this and having a conversation with you. Yeah. Well, where do you kind of like to start with people when it comes to, to just kind of sharing what, what's in the book, your story, and, and kind of um, what's led you to this to this point in your life? Thank you. The, the um, place I, I like to start is that this was not a book that I wanted to write, mm. and it felt like almost like a spiritual mandate mm. to write it. And I feel like I wrote it for love, and I wrote it to speak for those who never had a voice, as well as to reveal the dark history of psychiatry. Mm. And, uh, and I believe that we're in a time on the planet where everything that has been hidden is coming up to be looked at on both a personal as well as an individual level. And, and so I, I think that this book both exposes certain things that the general public might not know about, and certainly the psychiatric world doesn't, mm. d- doesn't necessarily know about or learned in medical school or, yeah. or through psychology or social work. And I think it's important for us to understand those things. Yeah. So this book was an act of love. Yeah. You were raised in a pretty chaotic environment as a child. Very chaotic. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We moved all the time. Yeah. Um, my mother often was with violent men, and so sometimes we moved. Um, once Bud, Bud put his fist through the wall, and mm-hmm. the neighbors complained, and we were kicked out. Yeah. Um, Often they didn't have the rent, and we would move in the middle of the night. There was an old army trunk that my mom had, um, and only what would fit in that trunk could go. So if I had accumulated any toys or hand-me-downs from my cousins, those usually got left behind. So there wasn't any kind of stability whatsoever. My mother was so dysfunctional, she didn't know how to parent. Yeah. She, had, she simply had no idea how to parent. And so I pretty much ran wild. And it's amazing that I didn't get in a lot more trouble. (laughs) And I also, I think it was in second grade, I ended up, and I couldn't tell you how how I did this, but around 2.30, the bell rang at 3, I would start literally almost like a fishing line, throwing my mind out and figuring out what was going on at my house and whether it was safe to go home or not. Mm. Whether my mom had someone there and whether she, how drunk or sober she was. And I started playing a game with it to see if I was right. And I was usually right. I don't, I don't know how I did that. Mm. And, uh, and then if I knew that it wasn't safe, I would just wander around town yeah. and you know, find all kinds of things to do with, yeah. do. Um, churches were one of my favorite places. And I often had long conversations with the statues, which I believed represented, mm-hmm. you know, God or the divine. Mm-hmm. And I also lived in a very rich imaginal realm because the, the world that I lived in was so terrifying. Yeah. 
And so I lived in quite a make-believe world. And I didn't learn to read till the end of third grade. And I think it was all the trauma I had suffered. Yeah. And it was through the kindness of a substitute teacher. The, the regular teachers had given up on me that I finally learned to read within mm -hmm. a week's time. And then through the kindness of someone else, I found out about the library and I got a library card. And then I became an avid reader. And then I would read a book that I loved and then I would create a whole world that the person, the mother in that mm -hmm. book was my mother. You know, Nancy Drew, I became a detective. And so then I would play detective and Nancy Drew's mother was my mother. And yeah. and so I did a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, the other fun thing I did was, um, I guess it wasn't fun. It was in many ways um, a way to take care of myself. There was a big hotel called the Karcher Hotel, which was kind of fancy in those days. Mm -hmm. And I would wander through the wall, uh, through the halls and pretend like I lived there. Mm. And one day I noticed that the bathrooms and tubs were right off the main hallway. And there were towels in there. So I went in and I took a bath. And where I lived, there was no lock on the bathroom door. So I was always getting intruded on. And I was terrified uh, because of the, the sexual exploitation and abuse that was going on. Yeah. And that went on for some time that I'd go to the Karcher Hotel once or twice a week to take a bath. Mm -hmm. And one day the, the maid came in and she asked me why I was, if I was staying in the hotel, and, and um, I believed in the Ten Commandments, and so yeah. I, I couldn't lie to her, and I said no, but I can't, I can't, we don't have a bathtub at home, and people walk into the bathroom and hurt me. Mm. And so she, she told me what days she was working and that I should come those days, and she, she started leaving um, bubble bath out for me and mm. towels and really looked out for me yeah. as I took baths in the Karcher Hotel. So I had lots of angels yeah. wearing the face of compassion and human skin that, that wove in and out of my entire life. You, um, you mentioned there some of the kind of the, the sexual exploita exploitation stuff that was going on for you um, yes. in your childhood. And, and I know that's something that, that you open up about in, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, what are you comfortable sharing with us about that? Well, first, what I want to say is um, my mother's father froze to death in a blizzard when she was three, and her mother became catatonic, which means she was non-functional. She was in a psychotic state. Yeah. And it was during the Depression, and her and her siblings w would have died had the older sister not gotten a job in town, which left the care of my mother, a brand new baby, and the other older siblings up to the brothers who literally decompensated, much like mm -hmm. the kids in the classic book, Lord of the Flies. And I say that because what I tell you I think is so reprehensible for people. They wonder why my mother didn't end up in prison, but I want you to have some compassion for her mm -hmm. and what she suffered. There was rampant sexual abuse. My mother um, got her first pair of shoes by climbing out the window and having sex with a farmhand. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of sexual abuse by the brothers. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe my mother grew past age three. Yeah. And when I was nine, she sold me for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I can remember 
her sitting and watching the man as he was raping me. And I remember thinking, she's not there. Mm. She wasn't really seeing me. And I think she was mentally ill. I think she was dissociated. And many years later, what I realized is that I think my mother's own trauma had become such a compulsion. And I don't think she saw me because, in a way, she saw herself. Mm. And I think she was trying to master her own pain and trauma. And so there was that kind of abuse and exploitation. Yeah. And that, how long did that continue? I was eventually taken away from her when I was 13. Okay. And it was almost too late. Yeah. We had been court ordered to see a psychiatrist because of a, a suicide attempt I had. And I was showing up at school with bruises all over me, etc. cetera. Yeah. And the psychiatrist worked at a local military base and he was moonlighting at this small emergency room. And he was a perpetrator. He essentially became my mom's pimp and mm-hmm. they had parties at the, um, at the base with other women and children on regular, regular occasions. Mm-hmm. And I know that he was giving her drugs, lots of drugs. And it was during that time that we were, in terms of location we were we were physically the most stable so we didn't move out of the apartment we were living in for for all the years Mm -hmm. that we were seeing him and that was from age nine until 13 when i was finally after a very serious suicide attempt taken away from her okay and you eventually at some point land in a, a state hospital yes i worked through this is pre child protection years and so I was overseen by the Justice Department, so a juvenile protection officer. And they didn't have registered foster homes then, so it was one placement after another. Mm-hmm. And I eventually got a couple scholarships to go off to college. And I, although I was academically prepared, I wasn't prepared because I was homeless the month before. I went to college, and that story is in the book. Mm-hmm. And I showed up at, uh, at registration with suitcase wanting to know where I was going to sleep. Mm. And they said, if you didn't sign up for a dorm, we don't have anywhere for you. And I stepped out of the line. I said, I guess I'll try to come back next year. And then the dean of girls saw me standing there and heard me. And she took me to the guidance counselor who was able to find a local widow who was willing to rent a room. Mm. at least temporarily. And that first year of college was really, really hard. I was working part-time at a nursing, um, not a nursing home, part-time as a nursing assistant at a hot local hospital, and I was being stalked by the respiratory therapist who had to be in his 50s. Mm. And he pulled me into the janitorial closet and started showing up um, at school in the halls and kept begging me for a date and and I I knew better and plus I wasn't dating that was the last thing I was interested in and he eventually showed up at the bottom of the L tracks and tried to pull me into his car and a businessman was coming down the steps and scared him off so I quit my job and went into quite a funk I was able to you know, get exams done, et cetera, but I wasn't reading anything on the bulletin board, and I didn't realize they were closing the dorms, and I had nowhere to go and no money. Mm. And I did something that was really stupid. 
I took a handful of, I believe it was aspirin or something, and then I made myself throw up and thought, well, that's really lame. I don't want to kill myself, um, and that's not going to solve anything. And then I got the courage up to go talk to the dorm mother. And one of the things that I realized, and I've worked with a lot of kids who've been in the foster care system, and now more and more we have good transition programs, but always, and if you talk to you know someone who's about to be 18, there's this belief that we should have it together, and now we're an adult, and we shouldn't have to ask for help. Hmm. And so it took a lot of courage for me to ask for help. Yeah. And so I asked for help, and the dorm mother was lovely and said she could think of a number of placements for me that had housing for the summer and a job, and that, but that she was going to put me in a taxi and send me to the ER to just to get checked out physically, and I was fine physically, but they said they were going to send me across town to another place called Illinois State Psychiatric Institute just to, you know, relax for a couple of days or something. And so I was admitted there, and I didn't know this for many years, but they were doing drug research. I mean, I knew they were giving me drugs there, but I didn't know it was research, and they wouldn't let me out. And I wouldn't take the drugs. I kept spitting them, spitting it out. And I ran away, and then they had me committed to the worst state hospital in the system. Mm. And there was a nurse who was so angry about my commitment. She kept coming in and out of my, my room the night I'd come back from court. And I, I felt like a near zombie. Suddenly I'd gone from being in college to my life was over. In those days, they committed you for life. Yeah. And I just sat. I couldn't eat. I couldn't think. I couldn't do anything. I just sat. Mm-hmm. And shortly before her shift ended at 11, she came in. And she says, I'm going to come in and sit with you till day late if that's what it takes because you're not going to survive where you're going yeah. unless you let yourself have some feelings. And finally at dawn, after she talked and talked and talked yeah. <laughs> at me or to me, I broke down. And she told me that she was going to do everything in her power to get me out and that what was happening was not my fault and it was wrong and she believed it was even illegal. She was a graduate nursing student that only worked there four days a week. Wow. And many years later when I was writing the book, I found her and then we would talk at least twice a month Mm. and saw her a number of times. And just this last Thanksgiving... She was in a rehab facility. She'd had a really bad fall, was in tremendous pain. And I just had this sense. And a friend of mine who's a photographer and videographer, I said, Sandra, what are you doing after Thanksgiving? And she said, not much. I said, I think we should go get, I think we should go see Sydney and get her on tape. And she said, it'd be great. And I called Sydney. Mm-hmm. Her name was Dr. Sydney Krampitz by then. She had two doctorates. And um, we went to, and I called her and she was ecstatic. And she said, bring me the book. And I said, Sydney, it's not out yet. Well, don't you have a paper copy? Well, yeah, but wait, why don't you wait for the book? She said, well, you don't know how much longer I have left. So we went, was able to get her on tape, which is on the website for the book, lauradevore.com. And she died two weeks later. Wow. And I am just eternally grateful. I, I literally would have died in Elgin State Hospital had it not been for her. And it took, I was there for 15 months. And my discharge papers say that I was on Thorazine, Stelazine, Melaril, Librium, and Dilantin Mm. all at the same time. And I didn't need any of them. 
and Thorazine was one of the anti, first antipsychotics developed, and the phar- pharmaceutical company sold it to the state hospital saying they could get patients out sooner. Yeah. And what it did, and they knew this, it created a chemical lobotomy. Mm. So if you know what a lobotomy yeah. is, where they used to go in with all kinds of horrendous, I don't even know if you'd call it equipment, yeah. and take parts of a person's brain out, supposedly, to cure mental illness. Yeah. They were doing that chemically. Wow. And so I was, a lot of the time I was there, I was a zombie like everyone else yeah. in the ward I was in. Obviously, a lot of life has happened between the point when you got out of that hospital to where we are today. Um, And we don't necessarily have the time to go through all that, obviously. But um, what have what has the healing process looked like for you? You know, you've you've described Mm -hmm. so much Mm -hmm. of what you've gone through. Um, You know, what what has it looked Mm -hmm. like for you? I was in therapy for many years. Yeah. I realized even before we knew that the body keeps the score, hmm. um, as Bessel van der Kolk wrote in his very successful book, um, I knew that, and I found someone who could do body work with me many, many years ago. I became a meditation practitioner and used a lot of breathing techniques when anxiety would come up. Therapy used to be such that people were encouraged to go back through the trauma and do what's called ab reactions and relive the trauma. We now know that re-traumatizes the brain. Mm. And although therapy, because of the care of the therapist I saw, was healing in many ways, it was also re-traumatizing in some ways. And I felt like every time I went to therapy, I was walking through a minefield and I never knew what was going to blow up. Mm. But I vowed that I would get well absolutely no matter what. I think that Elgin convinced me that I, I just couldn't live another way, that I would recover no matter what it, no matter what it took. I would not live my life with a leftover mental health diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I've done so much. Yeah. Um, I eventually went, to, went back to school, went to grad, graduate school, et cetera and went into mental health myself. And I think at the time I, I really wanted to believe that what had happened to me was some kind of anomaly and it was about something wrong with me mm. or defective in me or vulnerable about me. So the other thing that I've had to do is work on belief systems faulty belief systems that were formed. Because anyone who goes through any kind of trauma, there's usually belief systems that are formed. And we feel like we're not enough. Yeah. We, we feel, um, it took me a long time to go back to graduate school because even after all those years, I felt like I wasn't smart enough. So I really had to work on a lot of those false beliefs and laying them open. The other thing that I had to do was, and this was something that a spiritual teacher suggested, and she was a Native American woman named Dahani Yawahu, who's a 27th generation lineage holder in the the Cherokee Sagali Nation. And she told me that I needed to focus as much on the joy markers in my life as I was the trauma. 
And she said it was almost as though they were a bunch of pearls that had come apart, and I needed to gather them back and do a timeline that she wanted to see. Hmm. I was, at the time, staying on her land for a month. Um, I'd been given a scholarship for something called Women in Transformation. There was meditation every day and chant and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. It was life-changing. And so I did that, and I... And, I, and it was then that I, it's like, it's not like I'd ever forgotten all those angels of the crossroads yeah. in my life, but I suddenly really remembered them and felt them again and just felt the grace that had always held me through such such difficult times. And it's something I strongly recommend for anyone who's had a trauma history because the trauma can, can eclipse um, everything else. Yeah. And then that part of the brain, the amygdala, the oldest part of our brain that turns on fight flight, sort of stays amped up in hypervigilance. And just doing that practice of gathering those scattered beads of my life back together shifted something in me. Mm. So I strongly recommend that people do that. I also had COVID um, a year ago and I was um, working with a coach, and she knew someone who does something called bioenergetic synchronization release, which is um, a form of energy release. And what she does is she releases residue trauma from the energy body. Mm. And so I have worked with her off and on for the past year and a half, which has um, taken me to a whole nother level. It's not that I hadn't healed. I had definitely healed. And I worked for an organization in addition to Prairie Care called the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. And that work has taken me all over the world in places where angels fear to tread, including Mm -hmm. Gaza. And I've worked with Palestinians and Israelis together in Haiti after the very worst earthquake they had there where the infrastructure was totally unstable. And there was a civil war that broke out when we were there and I didn't get stressed or re-traumatized or triggered, mm-hmm. as did our whole team, because we were practicing mind-body t- tools and mindfulness all the time, because we practice what we teach. So all of that also, I think, fostered my ongoing growth. Yep. But the um, the bioenergetic synchronization release that Dr. Lori Beaver-Mandekic, and, and I have a resource page on my website if anyone's mm-hmm. interested in looking at that and her contact and it takes you right to her website is there has been absolutely amazing and what my coach had said is that even though I no longer had trauma that the residue can still say, stay in the energy body and she likened it to these small round butter balls that we used to get I think in a lot of um Eastern restaurants or Indian restaurants. And she said, you can hold one in your fingertips and flick it away, and it's gone, like your trauma's gone. But you're always going to have a little grease on your fingertips, mm-hmm. and that's the residue. And and she was at, her instincts and her intuition were absolutely right, and that, that work has just shifted absolutely everything and mm-hmm. taken me to a whole other level so that I can even talk about without yeah. getting overwhelmed or overly emotional about some of the things I've talked about today. Yeah. So when you when you say it's kind of taken you to a, a, the next level, what does that feel like feel like in your body for you? I feel like I have, you know, we talk in many spiritual traditions about the higher self. Yeah. And the teacher I currently work with talks about the soulful self. Mm. And um, talks about embodiment 
and back when I was doing so many spiritual practices before, people didn't talk so much about embodied. I know I am embodied now, and that that's the part of me, the essence um, of which we all are, our essential nature, our essential self, that feels like it's totally come in and landed. And uh, there's not much that throws me. And I'm able to just stay in the present moment and just really trust the universe. Before we, we, we started recording, I know we kind of started talking about how important this like mind-body connection work mm-hmm. and spirituality is yes. in the work of mental health. Why? Why, why is that important? I think people need tools. Most of the pharmaceuticals have been proven, and I'm not saying we should never give anyone a pharmaceutical, but most of them have been proven to not be effective long-term and to have debilitating side effects. So we have to have programs that teach skills. So that's one thing, and mind-body skills are the perfect skills. Mm. And... Through that work with the center, I mean, I've watched entire traumatized populations, including youth and teachers at, down at Broward in Parkland after the shootings there. I've watched um, amazing things happen without a diagnosis and complete healing happen because, because not only are people taught about how these amazing bodies we have function, that, it, that so that our amygdala, the oldest part of the brain, literally hijacks the frontal cortex. And when we're in an amygdala um, hijack, we don't think the same. We can't plan the same. We are not relaxed. And our body is, is literally flooded with hundreds of, of hormones and neurotransmitters. But we can literally get back in the driver's seat with some simple practices, with simple breathing practices. Mm-hmm. It, so it's not rocket science. I've taught it to preschoolers in a whole preschool program. So that's that's one thing. And trauma creates an existential crisis. And an existential crisis is one of those crises in which we ask the big questions, like, what's the purpose of my life? Why did this happen to me? Will life ever be the same? Is life worth living? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, when you have multi-layered trauma, I'm not saying this is true with every kind of trauma, or deep, profound trauma, it, you suffer a sense of soul loss. And that's about our essence. That's that soulful self, the higher self. And the only way to recover that is through some kind of relationship with your spiritual self. And, and that's very different than religion. Mm. Religion is, may, is, about an inst- is often about an institution in which we choose to practice or to feed our spiritual nature in community. Yeah. But for some people, spirituality is about a walk in the forest yeah. and about the beauty of the universe. So it's different for every people, everyone. But that sense of soul loss and having someone that really understands that and knows how to call the soul back in and what it's going to take on a spiritual level, I think is essential for full healing. Do you think we're ever fully healed? I believe so. Mm. I believe so, yes. I believe that it, it 
often happens in layers. Like I would have said prior to when I got COVID and then a diagnosis of cancer, shortly after I recovered from the COVID, um, that I'd been fully healed. But what COVID did is it brought up the vulnerability, the residence of the vulnerability that I had in childhood mm. that, I, that I needed to really experience yeah. um, and, and removed at an energetic level. And I was able to, I found myself grieving, would be the best word, um, for things that I didn't even know that were still there to grieve about. Like the day that the, the, my books came out and I got the box of books. I grieved that I did, other, I mean, I have a son um, and grandchildren, but they live out of town and I have some good friends, but I grieved that I didn't have a family of origin that I could share this amazing, exciting moment with. And that took me into remembering what it was like to sit on the steps day after day, hour after hour, when my mother would leave me alone for days and there was no food in the house. And I was always in a double bind. I would be terrified that she'd come home with someone and terrified she might not come home because I knew that she didn't know how to get herself home often and didn't know how I needed to grieve for that. But it was like, it was almost like the, the coffee dregs you know, mm-hmm. at the bottom of the coffee cup. Yep. I'm always, it's always incredible, isn't it? How stuff can arise mm-hmm. so much later in life. Right. That are, that's tied to things that were so, happened when we were so young. Right, right. And, and, and what have you learned about when those emotions surface? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you experience them? I think it's really important to lean into them, allow them. Yeah. And to love into them. I think that's part of unconditional love, that, that we really have to love that aspect of ourselves that's finally expressing those emotions. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's, that's critical. What does the next chapter hold for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I had written a, a different book before I wrote this book that I set aside and never did the editing of so I, uh, my publisher tell me they'd, they'd like to publish that one as well. Yeah. And so eventually I'll probably get to that. And something is simmering. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Another book. And it might even be about the amazing journey of writing this book. And everything. I've had so many magical moments in the writing of this, this book uh, that it'd be wonderful to write a story about that. Mm. Uh, so I, I don't know yet. Yep. And of course, right now I'm still doing a lot of book launch, book tour stuff and love to talk to institutions and medical centers because I think that's how we begin to shift consciousness and begin to change the way mental health is practiced. And I also believe that this book has implications for teachers uh, and for anyone actually because we're in a time where kindness and compassion are more important than ever. And we have got to come together if we're going to survive as a species. This divisiveness literally has to shift. And so whatever I can do um, to begin to help with that shift and that needs to happen on the planet, I'm willing to do. I think eventually there'll be some workshops and trainings and stuff like that. And Right now, it's just continuing to get the book out there and yeah. promote it and and share whatever lessons I've learned from my life and COVID and all of it. Yeah. 
last question that I have for you, I think, is just, you know, you talked about the, the, the journey and the lessons mm-hmm. that you've mm-hmm. learned. Um, I'm sure there have been many of them, but is, is there one that's really kind of at the forefront right now at this point in your life as far as a lesson that, that you really mm-hmm. hold dear to your heart? Yeah, I think uh, probably the top ones that come come to me are we don't have to be stressed all the time. What anxiety does, it's a way in which our mind goes into the future and makes stuff up and brings it back and scares us to death as though it's real. And it doesn't serve us. It depletes us. And we are not our better selves when we're in in anxiety. And what I know with all my heart is we can choose where to put our attention. So when I was going through COVID, which was... Um, horrendous. I had a horrendous case of it. I nearly died and went home and was told I would never get off oxygen in all likelihood because my lungs would be too compromised. I chose where to put my attention no matter what. And my attention went to, I'm going to grow through this, not just get through it. So I think that's one thing, and it's an attitude shift. And catching myself when I would go into worry worry zone, mm-hmm. knowing it's like being it's also like being in a rocking chair, and you can rock all day, but you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Another a- analogy I heard someone say recently is, um, it's like milking a cow and expecting orange juice to come out. Mm. <laughs> Our brain is meant to be in service of our essential self, of our higher self. Mm. And it wants a job to do. So it's going to find a job to do and make up all kinds of stuff in its head unless we give it another job to do. So various meditation practices and mind-body skills help the brain to do exactly that. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, I believe that one of the reasons why I'm alive today is because some people were so present with me that their presence became, became medicine. And I believe each and every one of us, not just people in the psychiatric world, can be that for another. Mm. And I suspect that you're that kind of human being just mm. by the, your questions and your presence with me in this interview. Mm. And we all want to cultivate that in ourselves um every year like like many people in in the new year i set an intention and my intention for the last two years has been the same and it's to be a luminous presence on the planet the other thing is old beliefs you never know when they're going to sift to the surface as much work as i'd done on them when it got close to be being able to or moving forward the book had come out and I realized I suddenly realized oh my gosh I'm going to have to interview this book and promote it I don't know why when I wrote it I never that ever occurred <laughs> yeah. to me but it didn't and I found myself thinking I'm going to feel so exposed and I one day I sat down and looked at the word exposed and I said I thought I need a new I need a new name a new a new word mm-hmm. and the word that came to me was reveal And so I made a sentence for myself that I said every day, and I usually say before every interview, I choose to reveal myself as loving presence. Mm. 
beautiful. In every moment and every situation. Hmm. And it's time for us to be kind to one another. Yeah. We can change the course of someone's day just with a comment. And presence. And presence. Yeah. That's right. Thank you. Laura, thank you so much. Just an, an honor to be able to sit down with you and, and hear you reveal your story to, mm -hmm. to all of us here today. So thank you. Thank you. Once again, just want to take a moment to, to give Laura a big thank you for, for carving out some time to, to join us here on the podcast. So grateful for it. I so, so valued the time getting to connect with Laura and um, just so moved by her story and, and all the ways that she's showing up in the world. want to let you know that uh, in the show notes of this, of this episode, I have a link to her website. And so that's where you can learn more about her book, more about her story. And uh, you can kind of dive in a little bit deeper to, to her work if, if, that's, if that's calling towards you here today after listening to this episode. Thank you so much for, for being here. Um, as always, I hope that you take what serves you from this conversation and go ahead and leave the rest. And as always, be gentle. Be gentle with yourself over there. And we'll talk to you soon, okay? Okay.